Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. When Mark was talking about people falling down before Jesus, I couldn't help but think of that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where they come and look for Jesus and they're asking, well, where, where's Jesus? Where is this guy who said that he's, hey, are you Jesus? And Jesus steps up and he says, I am. And they literally fall back because they realize that he is the almighty God of the universe. And they lose control of their faculties, realizing that he is indeed the great I am. And that's who we are going to be looking at today in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be finishing up chapter 1, a, a little mini milestone of sorts. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. Um, and this letter that Paul wrote to the church of God, which is at Corinth, is largely corrective. They have a, a lot of problems, a lot of issues in the Corinthian church. And we haven't really gotten too far into those just yet. We're just barely getting into that. We've seen in chapter 1, in verse 10, if you want to glance down at verse 10, that's the first instance we see of, of correction, of rebuke. Paul actually says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Remember, they were making divisions amongst themselves, choosing teachers that they were going to submit themselves under. They would say, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, dividing amongst themselves. And to, to point out the, the ridiculousness of this, Paul says in verses... 14 through 16, um, he starts talking about baptism, but before that he says, it's not Paul who, who baptized you. You're not baptized in the name of Paul. Paul wasn't crucified for your sins. It's Christ who was crucified for your sins. And this kind of sends him off on this little rabbit trail, so to speak. He kind of distracts himself, and he starts talking about baptism for a moment and how he baptized a few, but that wasn't his, his main purpose. God didn't send him with the ministry of baptism. In verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That was his purpose. That was his goal. He, like us, was an ambassador of Christ sent to preach the truth of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And for the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the world's response to that gospel. Uh, verse 17 again says, that the cross of Christ would not be made void. The response to this cross of Christ is one of rejection by the world. In verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And then down in verse 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. Each one of these phrases, um, the, the word of the cross, the cross of Christ, and in verse 23, Christ crucified, these can all be summed up in God's work of the gospel. And again, the, the standard response to the gospel and what God is doing through the gospel, through Christ's work on the cross, is rejection. The world looks at it and it is foolishness to them. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute or register with them. As Andy read for us this morning from verses 18 through 25, they look at the cross and it is foolishness. It is folly, both to the Jew and to the Greek. Verse 24 says um, that we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. Oh, that's 23. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Remember the Jews, they were looking for a Messiah who would come and who would reign and who would get rid of the, the authoritative power of the Roman Empire and they didn't see how the cross of Christ computed with that. It didn't register that their reigning Messiah would be hung on a tree. Those two didn't equate. And for the, the Gentile, for the Greek, remember, they pride themselves in wisdom. The Greeks search for wisdom, verse 23. And on paper, again, that doesn't make sense. They would ask for a formula. Well, how, do, how does that work out that death results in, in life. That doesn't make sense. That the almighty creator, the king of the universe, would have to die in order to give life. That doesn't make sense. Not if you are 
lost, not if God hasn't opened up your eyes and revealed to you the truth of the gospel. But again, in verse 24, it says, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are called, to those who he has revealed this to, Jesus himself is power. Jesus himself is wisdom. And we're going to jump onto you and, and grasp onto that thought as Paul expounds on it in verses 26 through 31. But before we turn to the word of God, let's turn to the Lord and open up with a, a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for who you are, that you are the sovereign king of the universe, that you answer to no one, that there is no shadow of change within you, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you have spoken your word to your holy prophets and apostles and you have preserved it for us. You speak to us now today through your son. God, I pray that as you work this morning, that you would use me though I am fallen, though I fall short in, in so many ways and I am unworthy and uh, I have a, a tendency towards sin and towards error. God, you can use that. You can use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and I thank you for that. Without that, we would be in a world of trouble. God, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And pray that you would guide us as we look at this text of Scripture this morning. And pray this in your name. Amen. So again, here in, in verse 24, Paul sets apart those who are called, and he says, these guys are different that the cross is foolishness to these other people who are perishing, but to those who are called, the cross is, is wisdom. And Christ himself is wisdom. Christ himself is power. And we spoke a little bit last week about how this calling is an effectual calling. Um, it's a, a calling that appeals to our justification, to our salvation. And that same calling is what is in view here in verse 26, an effectual calling. That is an inward call to salvation. When we speak of this word call, there are a couple of different aspects that, that we can see. We can see an inward call and an outward call. An outward call is a call to the gospel. That's a, a presentation of the gospel. Again, that is what you and I as ambassadors of Christ are called to take to the world and to present to the world a call to repentance, a call to recognize that Jesus is Lord. We see this outward call, this outward presentation of the call in Isaiah 45, 22, where God says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And then again in Acts 17, 30, a verse that we're going to be looking at here in a couple weeks in our, our midweek study, says that God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This is the outward call, that we all need to come to Jesus, that we are sinners, that we are in need, desperately in need of a Savior. That is the outward call of the gospel. Now, that is not what we're talking about here. Again, these verses in the end of 1 Corinthians 1 refer to the inward call. And I want to read to you this quote from, from R.C. Sproul. He says, the effectual call of God is an inward call. It affects or works the inward change of the disposition, inclination, and desire of the soul. Before the inward effectual call of God is received, no person is inclined to come to him. Remember, as we talk about often, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are by nature, enemies of God, children of wrath. That is where we sit in our natural state. We are opposed to God. And the, this teaching, this quote from R.C. Sproul, recognizes that we will not turn to God in our own initiative. We won't come to him unless he calls us inwardly, unless he places within us a desire to come to him, unless he opens up our eyes and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. That is the distinction between the, the inward call and the outward call. Remember that when God called the earth into creation, what did the earth do? <laughs> the earth was created, right? The earth submitted, and it was um, 
listening and complying with the God of all creation. When Jesus, in John chapter 11, he spoke into the grave for Lazarus to rise up and come out. Lazarus complied and he listened to God's effectual call to rise up and to come out. And then when Jesus was speaking to the wind and the waves to, to be still, the disciples were confused and they looked at one another amazed and they said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, that man is the God of all creation. That man is the God of the universe. He is Lord of the wind and the waves and that's why they listen to him. That is why they bow the knee, so to speak, to the effectual call of God. He is the Lord of all creation and he has absolute authority over everything that he has made. And that applies just as much to what he has made on day six of creation as to any other day, namely to man and, and woman, that we as his creatures will comply to his inward effectual call if he calls us, if he decides that he wants us to do something, then we will submit to that, that we will be molded as clay in the hands of the potter, that we will be fashioned by his will into new creations, that he will have his way with us because he is sovereign, he is almighty, and we are no different from the rest of creation in that sense. Uh, a popular verse in Romans 8, talking about the, the nickname, the, the golden chain of redemption. In verse 30, it says that those who he, whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. That is to say that everyone who he has called, he has justified. He hasn't called anybody inwardly with this inward effectual call that is not justified, that is not made right with him. If he has called you, he has justified you. Everyone who he has called, he has justified. And so this is how we are able, in fact, to make a distinction between the inward call of, of salvation, of justification to be made and declared right with God, as opposed to the outward call of the gospel. Anybody who has ever shared their faith knows that when you share your faith, you're not always going to have the person that you're talking to embrace that truth and receive that, that truth and bow the knee to Christ, right? Um, but again, here in Romans 8.30, all who are called are justified. So there's a distinction between the inward call and the outward call. And rather than ask, as, as many do, why it is that God has called some and not others. What we really must be asking is, why does God call anybody at all? Why does he call and, and justify and, and save and redeem anybody at all? And that is what we're called to do here in verse 26. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he says, consider your calling, brethren. Consider why it is and, and how it is that, that you are called. Many believers, many Christians have a, a difficult time explaining why it is that, that some are called and others are not, explaining and, and articulating why it is that we have responded to the gospel, whereas maybe our neighbor or our coworker or our family member has not. And to imply or to assert in any way that our salvation is dependent upon ourselves is treading on thin theological eyes. You are flirting with, with heresy when you suggest in any way that it is dependent upon us. Now, I, I firmly believe that it is possible for somebody to articulate something in a heretical way without themselves being heretics. So I don't want to say that if you can't correctly identify or, or articulate salvation that you are wrong. Um, here in a couple weeks in our systematic theology class, we're going to be looking at Trinitarian fallacies, um, ways that people don't correctly identify the Trinity, that, that beautiful, amazing, unexplainable doctrine of the Trinity. And oftentimes, people will use illustrations or examples to try to help us understand the fact that there is one being of God, yet three people who are, are in that being. And any time that we try to use an example of the Trinity, we're going to we're going to mess it up because God cannot be explained. He cannot be brought down to our level. And so maybe you, like me, at some point in the past have 
tried to explain to somebody, well, it's, the Trinity is like water. It's like H2O in the sense that uh, it can be in a liquid form or a, a gas form or a solid form, ice or, or gas or water. And what we're doing when we try to picture God in that way is um, the Trinitarian fallacy of modalism. It's saying that God takes different modes, different forms, that he can only be in this form at one time or in this form at one time. And that is an incorrect way to try to picture God. Another common one is the, the three-leaf clover. People will say, well, God is like the three-leaf clover, right? It's, there's one clover, and yet there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the, the fallacy of partialism saying that Jesus is only one-third God, or the Holy Spirit is only one-third God, or the Father. Um, it's an incorrect way to portray or to articulate the Trinity, but just because you try to articulate God in that way doesn't mean that you are heretical, that you aren't saved. So it's, again, possible to not be able to articulate something correctly without embracing that truth. I don't believe that um, somebody who would use those illustrations would actually believe that Jesus is only one third God or that God is only in one form at one time. And so in the same sense, when we are trying to articulate why it is that one person is saved over another person, um, I think we need to be a little bit more careful in, in the uses, usage of our words and, and realize that I don't think any Christian would say that they have been saved because they are better than somebody else, right? Any, anybody who is in Christ would recognize that there is none righteous, not even one, that we all fall short, and that we were saved by grace alone. However, you might be tempted to say that, well, maybe I am saved. Maybe I am called inwardly as opposed to somebody else because I'm, I'm more well-read, because I'm... I'm I've taken the time to study God's word. Or maybe I'm more humble than the guy next door and I can submit to the fact that Jesus is Lord. Again, you're, you're flirting with heresy when you try to say that our salvation is in any way dependent upon us rather than solely dependent upon God and what he has done in our lives. Um, while, while believers, again, might use this kind of terminology um, having this, this false understanding of the fact that they are somehow involved with, with their salvation, I think we have to stand up and, and say that this is an incorrect way to, to understand salvation. To say that, again, we are in any way involved. And oftentimes people will try to give God most of the credit. They'll say, well, he does 90% of the work, even 99% of the work, and we just do the, the last 1% of the work. That is, that is incorrect. That is wrong. Um, a common analogy that people will use, they'll say, well, it's just like we are drowning out in the middle of an ocean somewhere and we are without hope. We can't do anything to save ourselves hundreds of miles offshore and Jesus comes along in a boat and he tosses us a rope or he gives us a life preserver or reaches out his hand and all we have to do is, is grab that rope or grab that hand. Well, the problem with that analogy is the Bible doesn't describe us as drowning out in the middle of the ocean. The Bible describes us as dead in our trespasses and sin. And dead men can't reach out and grab a rope. Dead men can't reach up and grab the hand of Jesus. Jesus has to do 100% of the work. He has to give us new life. We have to be regenerated in him. And so this analogy really boils down to a, a synergistic understanding of justification. Now, that's kind of a, a big word. Don't check out on me. Hopefully you haven't already. Um, we're going to have a couple of big words, but we're going to explain them. Um, synergy um, or synergism comes from two Greek words that, that go together. So sin or, or soon comes from the Greek word, the prefix, it means alongside or together. And then um, ergon comes from the Greek word that means to work, so to work together. So synergy, or synergism, rather, would say that um, our salvation comes about as a combined effort on God's part and our part. We have to work together, whether that's 50-50 or 99 and 1%, that in some way we are working together to achieve our salvation. This is opposed to the teaching of monergism. Again, uh, ergon, to, to work, 
and then mono with the prefix one, that God is the only one working in relation to our salvation. He alone does all of the work. And that is what we believe here at, at Orchard Hills Bible Church. Not at Payson Bible Church anymore. Orchard Hills Bible Church. Uh, we are, are monergists. And many Christians think that they are the decisive cause in, in God's grace. Whereas we would say that God is the absolute decisive force, the decisive cause for our salvation. Um, I want to look at Romans chapter 9. And here we will see the, the very question that I posed earlier. Why is it that, that God would save any of us? And so in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, um, God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And then Paul, um, predicting the response that this is going to bring out, says, well, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? How is it that God can say he loves one and, and he hates another? That would be unjust, right? And he follows up and he says, absolutely not. May it never be, God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man, get that, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs but it depends on God who has mercy. Our justification, our being declared righteous, our salvation doesn't depend on man at all. It depends on God who has mercy. He has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Hebrews 12 says that he is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. It is God who works within us. We can see this back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, talking about how God chose Israel and why he chose Israel. In verse 7 of Deuteronomy 7, it says that the Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. You were in fact the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you, he chose. God didn't choose him for choose Israel for anything that they had done, not because, again, they were wiser, they were more um, read, they were more submissive, not because of anything that Israel did, but because he chose to choose them simply out of his love. And that's the same reason that he chooses to, to save us, to call us. Why some of us have that, that effectual inward call that we respond to the truth of the gospel, to the outward call. And when this question is asked, by what means did God choose one person over another, we can't say that it's just because of anything that person did or didn't do, but it's simply God acting in accordance with the sovereign freedom of his will. He chooses to call some inwardly, and he chooses not to call some inwardly, and he is completely justified in that. He is a just creator of all the, the universe. Remember, it is while we were still sinners that Christ called us to himself, Romans 5.8. And Ephesians chapter 2 says that by nature, we are children of wrath. That's our, our default position. We are children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, saved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. For it is by grace that you have, saved, have been saved. We are saved 100% by, by Jesus and his work. And the only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary, right? We don't add anything else to it. Looking down in verse 27, 28, 1 Corinthians 1, it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. And so going back to, to verse 18, that the word, of cross, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And just as 
that, that understanding as our human understanding and worldly wisdom has been flipped on its head by the cross. So to our understanding of who is to be saved by its power is, is flipped on its head. Where we might think, okay, well, you have to be really wise. You have to be really prominent, really good to be saved. This passage is telling us, no, it's, it's absolutely the opposite. That God uses the weak things. God uses the shameful things of the world to, to shame the, the powerful things, the things that we would look at on the outside and we would say, well, that, that person is worthy. That person is, is somebody that God would save, that God would use. Just looking back to the, the Old Testament for a moment, think of, of Noah and when he was working on that ark, how often he was ridiculed and mocked and people looked at him and they thought, what is this guy doing? And yet in the end, they were shamed, right? They were reaching out for, for life as they were being drowned by the righteous wrath of God. And Noah was sailing away, right? Um, look at, at David, King David. And when he was anointed as king, the highest, most prominent spiritual leader in all of the land was coming to his house, and he wasn't there. All of his brothers had been summoned and brought there, but David was forgotten, so to speak. He was out in a field, wasn't even worth Jesse, his father's time, to have him brought in. Um, I'm sure everybody else was dressed up. They sat down, had a nice dinner with Samuel, the, the prophet, and David was overlooked. And God actually said to, to Samuel, once he came in, he started going through the brothers and thinking, oh man, this guy, he is, he's big and, and stout and strong, it must be him. And God said, nope. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You look at him and you think, oh, well, he's, he's a man of, of stature. He's a, a big, strong man. But God is the one who looks at the heart, and he chooses based on the heart. He chooses the weak and lowly things of the world, not those that are, are proud and puffed up. Looking um, at, at Gideon, the judge, remember that he had a huge army. He was going to take up against the, the Midianites. And God said, no, that, that army is too big. That army is too big for me to use, too big for me to be glorified in. And he whittled them down to 300 men. And he said, okay, well now, now I can use you guys. Because you guys won't receive the glory, but I'm going to receive the glory because you guys are lowly. You guys are weak. You are the despised of the world. And I can go out and I can use you and I can glorify my name through 300 people that are, are weak and lowly. That is what God chooses to use. That is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. And Jesus comes along, and who does he pick for his disciples? But a bunch of fishermen, right? And, and not even good fishermen at that, fishermen who, who can't catch fish unless Jesus tells them where to put the net down. Uh, they're, they're impotent fishermen. And he throws in a, a wicked tax collector, right? And an IRS man who is hated by everybody that he cheats and rips off and takes money from. He throws in a zealot, uh, a terrorist really, who is rebelling against the Roman authorities. And he steps back and he looks at the, the motley crew of ragtag fishermen and terrorists. And he says, okay, well, yeah, I can, I can use that. I can work with that. And he takes those people and he flips the world upside down. He uses those 12 men to completely radicalize the the entire world with the gospel after his death and resurrection. That is the kind of, of people that God wants to use, that God can use. Look at the person who wrote our text that we're looking at today, along with half of the New Testament, Paul himself, when he was referring to himself, he said, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Saul of Tarsus, who came along and was persecuting the church, actively hating the Lord himself, and Jesus said, no, I, I, can, I can use that. I can take that, and I can use that for my glory. And, and he does. He uses the weak and the lowly things of the world to shame the wise. Now, it's, it's believed that this Corinthian church was primarily a, a Gentile bunch, that they weren't a, a Jewish bunch. There were some Jews that were dispersed here and there. But looking forward into chapters 5 through 7, we see a description of the, the sexual sin that was prominent amongst this church. And those sins are more descriptive of, of Gentiles than they would have been for the Jewish people. 
Remember that later on he's going to speak of, of meat that is sacrificed to idols and tell them um, and really give them advice on how to approach meat that's sacrificed to idols. That wouldn't have been an issue for a Jewish group, but for a Gentile group it definitely would have been an issue. Uh, chapter 6, he gives a, a laundry list of sins, sexual immorality, um, idolatry, homosexuality, um, all these things, and he says, such were some of you. And again, these sins are much more aligned with a, a Greek or a, a Gentile culture than with a, a Jewish culture. And so these people that Paul is writing to in the Corinthian church were much more uh, predisposed to think as the Greeks would have. And as we learned last week, and we see in verse 23 that... Um, uh, 22 rather, the Greeks search for wisdom. And they lived right in the midst of the greatest period of philosophical discovery in, in all of history. And so nearly everybody would have been familiar with, with Aristotle or Plato or Socrates, all these high-minded men. Um, and we can surmise that these Corinthians likely struggled with the, the same problem as wisdom, that they fell into the same trap that the world was falling into, trying to fight for, for this wisdom, trying to fight for influence and to be wise by the world's estimations. And Paul had to come in and he had to say, no, there, there aren't many wise among you guys. There aren't many noble. There aren't many who are, are righteous, right, from a, an outwardly expression. You guys, you guys are a bunch of a weak people who really don't know what you're doing, right? He had to kind of bring them down a little bit and humble them and help them to see that, that they weren't all that. Look at with, with me at verse 26. Towards the end, he says um, that God has chosen the things that are not. Um, they would have heard this phrase as one of the most contemptible phrases in that culture that they could hear, that they actually didn't even exist. He says, you guys are things that are not. You're not important. You need to humble yourself. You think back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he said that um, it's the, the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. That Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy, right? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick who need a doctor. And we need to have that understanding about ourselves before we come to God. And that's who God is going to use, those who are sick and recognize their sickness, those who are poor in spirit. You think of two people who are poor in spirit, you get two people together who are poor in spirit, and it's going to be hard for those people to be divisive, as the Corinthians were but rather they're going to recognize their need. They're going to be aligned with each other in Christ, recognizing that they have nothing to offer themselves. They have no reason to boast. They have no reason to be proud in and of themselves, but they are at the, the whim of their creator. Now, when, when Paul says that there are not many among you who are, are wise, who are noble, he's not saying that there aren't any at all among them. He doesn't say there are none among you who are wise or who are noble. And so there are those people who are, are set apart. There are those people who are unique in their, their wisdom, in their earthly spiritual abilities, even in this Corinthian church. But throughout history, we see that there are people who are, are different. And that doesn't mean that they can't be used of God just because they have more natural ability than somebody else. I think of men like John Calvin and R.C. Sproul, who were absolutely brilliant, brilliant and um, spoke multiple languages and uh, preached thousands of sermons without the aid of notes um, and, and wrote incredible things to, to the glory of God. These men were definitely a step above the, the average man, right? But they could still be used of God. However, they didn't come to him through worldly, through worldly wisdom, but rather through humble submission, realizing that they were nothing in and of themselves, despite the fact that God had blessed them with these extra gifts or abilities, that wasn't what qualified them to come to God. The truth about God can't be known empirically. It can't be known rationally, but it must be shown to us through wisdom incarnate, through Christ himself. That is how we come to an understanding of truth, of who God is, by having it revealed to us. And that is so that as it says in, in verse 29, it would be all for the glory of God. It is all about Jesus. It's all about his glory. Verse 29 says, so that no man may boast before God. 
if somebody was worthy of being justified, if somebody was worthy of salvation, then they could step up and they could say, well, I did A, B, or C, or X, Y, and Z. Um, and that is why God has saved me. Again, we do nothing in our salvation except bring the sin that makes it necessary. God is the one who is doing all the work in our salvation. Right now, LeBron James is playing in his 10th NBA Finals, um, which means he's pretty good, right? If you don't know who LeBron James is, um, both of you um, (laughs) know that he is an amazing basketball player. He is called the king, right? He is the the Elvis Presley of basketball, the modern-day Michael Jordan. And he, again, is in his 10th NBA Finals. He is amazing. But each time that he has gone to the the national championship, his coach was not granted the, the award of being coach of the year. He wasn't recognized as being anything great because he had LeBron James on his team. You or I could take a team with LeBron James on it, and we could go to the, the national championship because he is that good. He's, he's amazing, right? But if you have a coach who takes a bunch of ragtag, throw-together people, a bunch of walk-ons, a bunch of has-beens, and he into a group and he takes them to the national championship, then he's going to win coach of the year. And when God uses a bunch of nobodies like you and me, that gives more glory to him. That gives him more praise, more honor, and it helps us to recognize that we have no place to boast because we are nothing. We are what we are because of who he is, who he has made us. And so we need to recognize that it is all about Jesus. It's all about his glory so that no man may boast before God. Looking at verse 30, it says that by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. We are not in Christ Jesus again because of our own doing, but because he has put us there. This Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So what does it mean that Jesus became to us these things. How, how does that work? Remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How does he become anything? Well, this is um, a, a reference. It has in view the incarnation of Christ, that the Word became flesh. It, he took on flesh, and he walked among us. Um, he is, again, the literal embodiment of wisdom. You want to see wisdom incarnate, you look to Jesus. Jesus is wisdom, and flowing out of that wisdom is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We've spent some time talking about the, the impossibility of even accounting for wisdom outside of Jesus Christ. You can't explain why you know what you know or how you know what you know, how you're even able to articulate a sentence without appealing to Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, he is wisdom. And in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Colossians 2 tells us that we have no wisdom apart from Christ. Looking at the the righteousness of Christ, we have understood that it is the active obedience of Christ, him coming and, and living a perfect life without sin, fulfilling the law, which enables us to be imputed with his righteousness. That He takes his righteousness and he credits it to our account, while in turn taking our sin and crediting it to his own account. Redemption, another word we see here in this verse, is what, is what his righteousness allows to happen, that he can redeem us. He can buy us back. He can purchase us out of the slave market of sin and renew us and make us into a new creature. Remember, our sin comes with a price. Our sin comes with a payment, and that payment must be met. That payment must be made, and Jesus redeems us. He makes that payment on our behalf. These are are beautiful truths. The the fact that Jesus became for us righteousness, that he became for us redemption. These are truths that in in time took place nearly 2,000 years ago, but for us they were actually realized at the moment of salvation. That's when he became for us righteousness. That's when he became for us redemption. And sandwiched in between these two words, righteousness and redemption, is this third word, sanctification. Now, remember that to be justified means to be declared righteous. 
And typically, when we talk of being sanctified, we're talking about the, the walk of Christ that we have in our life where we grow more and more into him. We become more and more like him day by day, where we are renewed to him and we have fruit that, it, that keeps in line with, with our repentance, where we are becoming more holy as he is holy. Now, when it comes to our, our sanctification, just like our justification, there has long been a discussion as to whether or not that sanctification, us becoming more and more like Jesus, is a monergistic work or a synergistic work. Again, that is to say whether or not our, our sanctification is 100% of God, whether he is working alone in making us holy, or whether we have some kind of joint effort in working alongside the Almighty in our holiness. And that is a, a long-standing debate, a difficult debate that we are definitely not going to um, come to any conclusions on today. But um, I do want to um, maybe give us a couple of different understandings of this word sanctification to help us in, in working this out. And so this verse that we're looking at here, 1 Corinthians 1.30, is often used by monergists who say that our sanctification is 100% of God. It says that Jesus became to us sanctification, whereas a, somebody who holds to a, a synergistic understanding of sanctification would use a verse like Ephesians 2.10, which said that, says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared beforehand for us so that we may walk in them. Those are works that we are to do, that we have a part in, in doing. We have to actively decide whether or not we, we get up and, and read our Bible each day or whether or not we get up and um, submit to the Spirit. So that's kind of where the, the different sides are coming from. But I want to um, break up this, this word sanctification into three different phases, so to speak, of sanctification. There is a... Um, an understanding of sanctification as being positional, progressive, and final. Again, don't lose me, okay? Um, we'll, we'll break it down. We'll try to make it understandable. So, uh, uh, positional and progressive and final sanctification. Final sanctification looks forward to the future, when we will be completely holy, completely sanctified, um, made like Jesus in the sense that we are without sin. That is future. That's when we will be saved from the presence of sin. There will be no presence of sin when we are glorified in Christ. We see this in 1 John 3, 2, which says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Again, we will be without sin one day. That is speaking to our final sanctification. Now, progressive sanctification speaks of being saved from the power of sin. This is what we most often speak of when we speak of sanctification. Again, in our day-to-day -day walk, becoming more and more like Jesus. Um, hopefully, you're more holy now than the day when you first came to Christ. It's a, a progressive act that he, he does in our lives as we become more and more like him. Uh, we are saved from the power of sin. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, in verse 24 and 25, Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And again, that verse, those verses would seem to indicate that we have some kind of, of part in that. If we are crucifying the flesh. Those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh. And we are to live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit. Um, and then the, the third aspect, the third phase of sanctification is positionally. Positional sanctification is when we are saved from the penalty of sin. So final sanctification, we are saved from the presence of sin. Progressive sanctification we are saved from the power of sin. And in positional sanctification, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And this takes place at the same time that we are justified. 
that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he sanctified us positionally, that God looks at us and he sees us as holy. He sees us as set apart, that our position in Christ has been changed. He has taken us and transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, which I believe is actually the verse I have here, Colossians 1.13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And I think that that's exactly what we have in view here in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that we have been positionally sanctified. Again, this word is, is sandwiched in between these other two words that took place at the point of salvation, that in Christ, he has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, things that are finished. He became to us, past tense, this sanctification. We can even look back at verse 2. To the church of God, which is at current Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That he has positionally declared us to be holy. He has positionally declared us to be righteous. Now, we know that the church at Corinth, if, if anyone was not able to say that they are completely sanctified, that they are holy positionally, or practically rather, um, progressively. They had some work to do, didn't they? As we'll see vividly in the coming chapters, they were a, a sinful church. And a great example of what it means to have to be progressively sanctified. And so whether or not this progressive sanctification that they still need to undergo is monergistic or synergistic, one thing is absolutely clear is that it is 100% from God and to his glory. That he is the one who gives us the power to be sanctified. He is the one who gets the honor and the glory for even our sanctification in our Christian lives. Remember that in our justification, in our being saved, God is the one who is working 100%. He does all the work. We are just the recipients of his grace. And yet man is culpable. We are responsible for rejecting Christ. In John 3.18, it says that he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If we reject Christ, we are condemned already on the basis of our sin. We are still culpable for not receiving Christ, for not embracing him as Savior and Lord and bowing the knee to him. And for those who do believe, we realize that we have nothing to boast in. It's not of us, but the glory is 100% to him and to him alone. And likewise, the same is true in, in our sanctification, that we do nothing in our own power, in our own strength, but we are called to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, that he is the one who takes us and again transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light, he is the one who sanctifies us and that we still are, are culpable, right? We are still responsible if we decide that we don't want to, to submit to him, if we don't want to follow him and walk in holiness as we ought to. We are the ones who bear that responsibility and we have no ability to boast in our sanctification. All the boasting is to Jesus and to Jesus alone, as we see in verse 31. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul said this to the Galatians when he was writing to the Galatians. He said, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be uh, sanctified and be perfected by the flesh? That, that's so foolish. That doesn't make sense. You both begin by the Spirit and finish by the Spirit and by the strength of the Holy Spirit. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. We can do nothing in and of ourselves. It is all about Jesus and all about His glory. And so this, this Corinthian church, again, who had a plethora of issues, a plethora of, of problems, they had an issue with, with boasting. Definitely in their understanding of their, their teachers or their pet teachers and who they decided that they were going to submit themselves to. But certainly they had other issues in, in boasting as well that went beyond what group they categorized themselves in, just as you and I have plenty of issues in, in boasting. And we, 
we need to realize again that there is nothing that we have to boast in. That just like the Corinthian church, we are the weak and the despised of the world that God takes and chooses to use. We who are called inwardly by God are called not because of who we are, but because he has chosen to love us out of his graciousness. We don't know why he has chosen one over another, but it has nothing to do with, with us. We are not the active, decisive force, either in our justification or in our sanctification. He is the one who does work. He is the one who gets the glory. It is in him that, again, we live and move and have our being. He is the one who has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And we need to realize that and recognize that so that we don't steal any of his glory, but let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our Lord. You are our King. You are the one who has called us. You are the one who has justified us and made us holy as you are holy. God, we thank you so much for, for how you have changed our, our position in you. That you look at us, you don't see wicked, dead sinners, but you have given us life. And you have made us righteous just as you are righteous. You have taken our sin upon yourself so that you can declare us to be pure and holy even when we are not in our day-to-day life. God, I pray that you would help us to correctly represent you better, that as children of God, we would walk as children of God, that we would walk as, as those who are in the light, that you would shine through us as, as stars in a crooked and depraved universe, that we would be a light for you and you would be honored through our, our work and our words and our attitudes and our hearts. God, we thank you so much for, for the gospel and the truth of the gospel. We pray for those that we know who haven't had their eyes open to the gospel, who still see it as, as foolishness, as a stumbling block, as unwise, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would use us as your ambassadors to reach a world that is lost and dying so that you and you alone can be glorified. God, help us to boast in you this week. We pray in your name. Amen.